Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. It is me, your host, Aaron Broverman. We are live on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. And with me in the studio today, we have Ron Kassman. Ron is the writer and artist behind a graphic novel called The Tower of the Comic Book Freaks, and it has to do with a group of buddies in the 70s who go to a comic convention in New York. Welcome, Ron. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you in because... Part of what we do here at Speech Bubble is I want it to be sort of an oral history of the Toronto comic book scene. And because of the generation that I'm a part of, I don't usually get people that go further back than maybe like the mid 80s, 90s in terms of their comic book experience. So this is a privilege for me because I think you can fill in some of the gaps in terms of what comics were like back in back in your era. I, I, I hope so. I think I can. Awesome. Awesome. I guess let's paint a picture first about when you were born, where you grew up, uh, and and what Toronto uh, looked like for you back in your childhood. Okay, this is actually the first page of my graphic novel. I start the graphic novel by doing a drawing of what Toronto looked like, I guess, 45 years ago, and a drawing of what it looks like today. I don't have a drawing of what it looks like in fi- looked like in 53. Uh, I was born December 1953. Uh, I was born in downtown Toronto, and one month later, Later, we moved to the far north end, North York, and I lived at Shepherd and Bathurst. In 53, I have no idea what, what was going on. But as I grew up, uh, there were comic books everywhere. Uh, first, it was a mass media at the time. Everyone read comic books. Girls read Archie comic books, Betty and Veronica, Little Lulu. Boys read uh, crime comics. They read superhero comics, what, whatever was there, really. I had a beloved Aunt Annie. Uh, Aunt Annie was a news dealer. This is an occupation which hardly exists at all anymore. Uh, If you go into the subways right now, you'll often see a kiosk where candy bars and magazines are sold. This would be what was left 
of the uh, of, of the news dealers. And when we think of news dealers and we're comic fans, we think of an, a 1940s comic where there's a boy on a street corner yelling extra, extra, read all about it. Try. Uh, my aunt was was the real life equivalent. Um, she brought up three kids. Her husband had passed away about the time I was born. She brought up three kids selling newspapers. So she always had comic books there. And the comics that didn't sell had the covers torn off and often went to us. So uh, it was a natural part of my upbringing. That's awesome. And at the time, comics weren't as precious a medium as they are now, right? Like there weren't like bags and boards or things like that. You you just read them, right? Like what was the perception of comics? It was uh, junk literature, junk literature. I, I suppose in a very similar way to today where you don't want your kids staring at the, the screen all day. At that time, many parents didn't want their kid staring at the comic books um, more than they should. In fact, many didn't want the kids staring at the comics at all. They rotted their minds. My parents didn't feel that way. There was a point in high school where... Um, I wasn't doing as well as my elder brother felt that I should. And my elder brother, who was 11 years my senior, said, no more comic books in the house. And my mother said, Larry, let him read the comic books. It's okay. And they were very, very important to me. Uh, They were something that you usually stopped reading when you were about 11 years old. And for some reason, I didn't. I know when the turning point was. In 1963... I had the measles and I was stuck at home. My aunt gave me a stack of comic books. And at the time, the Superman and Batman titles were my favorites. So what I did was I'd read a Superman and then I'd read a Classics Illustrated, which weren't, just weren't as good. Then I'd read a Batman and then I'd read a Flash and they weren't as good. And then back to Superman. And then I'd read a stupid Marvel title. And the stupid Marvel title that was put in front of me was Avengers number four, which was the first Captain America story. It was, I believe, 23 pages long. It was much deeper than the stuff that was being done. It was one of Jack Kirby, done at DC. Um, Jack Kirby drew it. Uh, It was just a magnificent comic. It would be a little bit like a kid who's brought up on just average movies being put in front of the Lord of the Rings and then becomes a fantasy movie fan for the rest of his life. That was my turning point. And prior to that, the stuff that Marvel was producing was thought of as, you know, stupid or I thought of it that way. The thing at Marvel was they were publishing excellent comics like Fantastic Four and Avengers, and they were publishing quite half baked comics like Thor. And if if you read some of the early Thors, they're just not that good. Ant Man, which seemed quite silly. Uh, the strange tale stories with the human torch. They didn't work. They were trying to do sort of an, an Archie type of story. And with this, a is before, this is before Doctor Strange came into Strange Tales. Uh, he was no, like Doctor Strange feature? was there at oh, the okay. time. But I remember it might have been Strange Tales number 122. Whatever it was, the thing guest starred in it. And it was horribly, like at the time, I didn't understand horrible drawing, good drawing. Right. But I knew that Kurt Swan was, I didn't know Kurt Swan by name. But if you look at a Kurt Swan comic, the guy can obviously draw. Right. And if you looked at that Strange Tales, and I don't mean to diminish Dick Ayers because he was an excellent artist. But if it was Dick Ayers, he was poorly placed on Strange Tales. And it wasn't him at his best. And you looked at it and it looked like somebody was drawing it who just didn't care about what they were doing, which was probably the case. And for our listeners, Kurt Swan uh, drew Superman for a long time. 
He was the best of the Superman yeah. artists, but all the Superman artists were at least good. Apparently, DC had higher rates than Marvel. They were able to attract, if not better artists, more mainstream artists. The story I heard was that Jack Kirby had a, a huge rift with one of the editors at DC. So instead of staying at DC, he just walked out on the whole company and went to Marvel, and they were lucky to have him there. Uh, Ditko was a tremendous storyteller, one of the very, very best. Sometimes I prefer him to Kirby. Uh, however, Ditko had this oddball style, and I can't think of any artist at DC at the time that fit. The, the DC artists were calmer, if you will, easier to look at. Ditko's stuff was just crazy and wild. It was very, like, angsty, right? Like, angst-ridden. Uh, that's a good way of putting it. I can't think of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, but I love Ditko. Yeah, so and I, I, love, I, I think maybe even more on Doctor Strange than on Spider-Man. If you look at the DC stuff and you look at the Marvel stuff, you can't imagine Ditko working at DC at that time. Right. So you, you got Avengers number four in 1963. And did that change your mind about Marvel from then on? Or? Well, I started noticing them more. And I, I was just a boy. And you needed something to do with the comics. You'd already read them. You virtually memorized them. Right. And they cost 12 cents each. I could buy a chocolate bar and ice cream instead. Mm -hmm. So today I've got <clears throat> probably 4,000 comics, and I'm betting that you do too. People yeah. have huge numbers of these things. Yeah. Back then I would have had perhaps 50, and it would have been more than almost any kid on the block with 50. So I sometimes put them in order from favorite to least favorite. Mm -hmm. And I remember my second favorite was Fantastic Four 19, I believe, which was the Ramatut issue. Uh, the Fantastic Four go back in time. They encounter the evil feral Ramatut, who may or may not have been Doctor Doom. This was just so much better than the stuff going on at DC. So I began to like Fantastic Fours as well, and I began to pick them up. Hmm. But with Avengers 4... I began being more than just someone who enjoyed reading them. I decided I had to get the whole string of Fantastic Fours. The first one I actually bought off the the rack, off the stands, literally from the drugstore, I remember buying it, was number eight with Kang the Conqueror. Wow. Then I had to run around and start filling in issues. Yeah. So you'd find that the kid down the street has one and you'd trade him or pay him for it. I remember buying number two at a Dublin public school uh, sale. Uh, any kid who wanted a table, you know, a lemonade stand style table to sell any stuff he had could do so. And I bought that issue there. And I just filled in from the kids in the neighborhood. Yes, because this wasn't a direct market. It was much harder to, I guess keep track of comics on a monthly on a monthly basis okay I, I don't have the exact details but i think the direct market probably came around in about 20 years yeah uh no you could go to the corner store each month and pick up the titles that you wanted okay the corner store was uh, a drug store and it was also a variety there were there, uh, about three blocks from the drug store there was a place called shears variety and you could find what you wanted there. They got deliveries, I suppose, once a week. You could get it all there. Cool, cool. So, but if you wanted to go back and get every issue, you sort of had to... To look around. Look around, yeah. And at the time, I'm not sure if it was at that exact time, but very, very soon, there were ads in the Marvel comic books by Howard Rogofsky and Robert Bell. And they asked you to send away a quarter to get the catalog. Quarter, you know, wasn't that much. Two ice cream cones and a Jersey milk chocolate bar. That's what a quarter would have been. You got a stamp from your dad. 
I sent away for the Rogovsky catalog. And he had these obscene prices. And they were obscene at the time. Um, As time went on, and I met other people who were similarly intrigued by comic books, I found that there was a feeling that no one should be allowed to make a profit off of this. And there was a phrase, no one will ever make their living off of fandom. Uh Howard Rogofsky, I think, was, was pulling in money hand over fist at the time from fandom so what was the what did the catalog have in it well for marvel it would have had all the marvels okay so i i eventually collected all the hulks Mm -hmm. and i couldn't find number five i i see i remember this i bought number five for three dollars and fifty cents from howard rogofsky was it seemed like a lot of money but i wanted to fill in my run Uh, another thing i remember and you've probably heard his name or heard of his store. There was a place called Memory Lane at 594 Markham Street. It was diagonally across from where the beguiling was until a few days ago. Yeah. It was run by a, by a strange old guy named George Henderson, who often called himself Captain George Henderson. Yeah, I, I it sounds familiar, vaguely familiar to me. It, it was a nickel and dime business. And you walked up these stairs, then you walked down a hallway, and the hallway had movie posters that were, were bleached to blue. And then George was at his desk, and he was, I'm 63, he was probably 45, but he really seemed like an old man. And he'd sit at his desk, and he'd have a little portable television on the desk, and he'd be there watching the Flintstones or Ozzy and Harriet, something that you yourself, who might have only been 12 years old, wouldn't watch anymore. Right. George would be there watching it. Then you'd turn a corner, and he'd have all the nickel and dime comics, and, and much of his stuff was nickels and dimes. There were no plastic bags, there were no boxes at the time. They were just out there. And if he had a valuable comic, like ECs back then, uh, he was selling for $2. Right, because back then, like, EC went out of business in the 50s, right? Because of the... It went out of business, except for Mad Magazine, of course, I I suppose in the mid-50s. So he was selling those for $2, these beautiful issues. He was selling old Uncle Scrooge comics and old Donald Ducks for 50 cents. He had a copy of Detective Number 1. Wow. $200. He had a copy of Batman 1. Uh, which he tried to sell for $50. Sorry, excuse me, $500. Wow. He had it on in a frame on an easel in the, the store window. And his story was that the window was smashed and the comic was stolen. I, I have to what be skeptical. What, well, someone else told me that there was someone who really hated the guy and uh, broke his window a couple of times, um, just threw a, a rock or a brick through it. And uh, George reported it to the police as a theft. Um, Ultimately, I don't know, but I don't think back to George as uh, someone who wasn't willing to change the truth a bit. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Cool. (laughs) That's awesome. So this era, the Tower of the Comic Book Freaks, this is sort of, I mean, it, it reminded me of sort of, I mean, it is a fictional story. Completely let's, fictitious. Let's get that straight. The it's characters completely are, fictitious. are fictional, but it did have more than a little air of truth to me. It seemed like, you know, because you grew up in Toronto, because you knew what it was like, because you hung out, you know, and, and read comics, you know, when you were a teenager, it, it seemed truthful, even though the characters were yeah. fictional. So I was reading it and I kept wondering... You know, which parts of the this is 
sort of true or, or, you know, a little bit true and which parts of this is fictional. So here I kind of want to get to the true story. Like, did you ever go to New York for the convention? And what was that road trip like? Because at its core, this is a, this is sort of a road trip story. Yeah. The convention they go to is called the New York comic book convention. Mm Mm-hmm. The convention I went to in New York, and I also went to them in Detroit, and I also uh, had a convention which I was co-chair of in Toronto called Cosmicon in 1972. So I was very knowledgeable about the convention scene. Uh, In New York, it was called the New York Comic Art Convention. So uh, is this what New York Comic Con became or like the precursor? I don't think there was any relation to the two. I don't know how one grew in. Uh, What I do know is there was a fellow named Bernie Bubness. I never met the fellow. I would have been too young to be involved. He had what was almost certainly the world's first comic convention in 1964. He was a high school student. He got together with the other high school students. They put this thing on. Steve Ditko came. I think there were about 150 people there. Uh, A fellow named Phil Suling got involved. Phil Suling was a high school teacher. He was also, um, I don't know if remarkable is too big a word for Phil Suling, but let's just say he filled up a room. He had very good people skills, very good organizational skills, and many attribute him as starting the direct market. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Phil Suling got on, on board with this convention and a few years later, he was the person who was chairing the convention. And a lot of people my age will, won't refer to them as the New York Comic Art Conventions. They'll just call them the Suling Cons because they were his conventions. He was there for every moment of it. He ran the thing. What made them distinct? Oh, there weren't any conventions at the time. Okay. There was one going on in Detroit run by another school teacher named Bob Roche. Okay. There was one going on in New York. The San Diego convention started about that time, but it was so far away. I'm really not sure what it start, what year it was. So, was there a distinct difference between a Sulincon and a Roshcon? Were there things that you could know inherently were Suling versus versus Rosh? Or, or okay, they- there were, there were. Okay, uh, I would say ultimately they were extremely similar because. Where could you go and meet 500 like-minded individuals? Right. There was, that was it. Mm-hmm. You know, once a year, Detroit, once a year, New York. The Bob Roche convention in Detroit, it was called the Detroit Triple Fanfare. And the three parts of the fanfare were probably science fiction, comics, and horror. Though, see, the fandoms were so small at the time mm-hmm. that we, we all crossed over at least a little bit. Right. If you were a horror person, you might have liked creepy, eerie, and vampirilla at the time. Mm-hmm. Science fiction. You know, I read science fiction, too. If I was going to read a book, it was going to be a science fiction book. So there, it was a triple fanfare, but it was um, comics were a big part of it. And I don't think it was the first one I went to. I think the second one I went to, DeForest Kelly was a guest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this, I know it sounds a little weird, but to DeForest Kelly and to most of the people there, he was just um, a second-rung star oh. on a defunct TV show that uh, most of the conventioners didn't care about. Okay. So I ran into DeForest Kelly uh, downstairs in the lobby, 
And I, I think I'm speaking well now, right. but I'm a fairly introverted fellow. And I'm not inclined to, to go over to people, shake their hands and say, I loved your show, especially if I never saw the show. Right. However, I was with a buddy who became a journalist for the rest of his life. Uh, his name is Mike Barris. He lived on Panahill in the old neighborhood. Okay. He was born to be a journalist. Okay. And he went up to DeForest Kelly and they started talking about Star Trek, about the CBC, uh, just about everything in DeForest Kelly's life because Mike liked interviewing people. Yeah. And I swear we were there with DeForest Kelly for two hours. <laughs> that just doesn't happen now. Magical. You can't. No, because it's too, the lines are too long. It's too controlled. No. Can you imagine running into him in the lobby, him right. having a cigarette? Right. He, he, what I noticed at the time, he was a, a rather tall man. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a big guy, but he could have been 6'2". He was a broad-shouldered man, and he was a very handsome man. When you watch him on TV, I don't think you think that. But when you see him in person... Um, I remember just thinking, I guess that's what TV good looks are like. Right. You've got to be very good looking to be a TV star. And he's he doesn't look good on TV, but he here he's what you call a handsome man. Right, right. Exactly. I, I spoke to Stan Lee for at least an hour. Wow. And uh, this was at York University at Cosmicon. Uh, Cosmicon held um, a little party for the professionals who came to the convention. So I, I have no idea what was going through people's minds, but I, maybe they just didn't want to talk to the boss. <laughs> wow. But I did. So it turned out Stanley had a niece that was at York University. So I was able to talk to him about comics and he was able to talk to me about his niece. He was a very nice man. When you think of it, he again, he was probably in his mid-40s. This was 1972. Right. You know, you could you could get the calendar and figure it out. Right. Um, hairpiece, no hairpiece? He had a great hairpiece. <laughs> now, folks back home, you can't see what I look like. <laughs> I, I'm looking at a reflecting window. And I am about as bald as a guy can be. I shave my head, not right to the bone, but it's no more than an eighth of an inch. And even when I was 18, I knew where my future was to lie. So I knew I was talking to a bald guy. And whenever he would glance away, I would glance at that telltale part. Well, the telltale no part, the telltale area where the, the, the hair has to fall over in a, in a freakish way. Right, right. Trump and has I, that too, I think, a little bit. Oh, he? He, he, no, tr the difference between Stanley's wig <laughs> and Trump's hair are night and day. Okay. Stan, okay, another thing, I'm going into handsome guys. Right. But first, Stanley is also a tall guy. He's about 6'2". And at the time, uh, men could wear boots, 1972. So he was wearing high-heeled leather boots. He was wearing leather pants, and I remember a leather vest. Wow. And the hairpiece just fit perfectly. And I was talking, again, to an extremely handsome man. This is a guy who knew that his public image was important and did himself up just right. right. And watched... I, I was just... A, I was an 18-year-old punk high school student. That's all I was. Did he have the aviators or was this before his, like, I, his glasses? I can't, I can't remember that aspect. Yeah. He did have facial hair. I right. think a mustache. Right. Um, but he was put together. Awesome. I, I do mean put together. He, yeah. he had an image to fulfill right. and he fulfilled it very, very well. Oh. And he was very nice to me. Mm -hmm. He had no reason to be so nice, but he was. Do you want to hear a quick Carmen Infantino story? Sure. Okay. Imagine this. Three, four, five guys um, go to the D.C. office, knock on the door and say, 
We're Canadian. We came all the way to New York. Please show us around. <laughs> so they take us into Carmen Infantino's office, and he had recently been named president of DC Comics. Right. And Jack Kirby had recently flown the Marvel Coop for the DC birdcage. And uh, Infantino was very excited, and I, I guess he wanted to do public role. I mean... I, I call it public relations, but we're talking about a man who loved comics. He had the title President of D.C., but the title could have been Cheerleader of D.C. He loved what he did. Right. And he had the chance to talk to like-minded people. We were in our late teens. That's all. Right. I don't remember who was there. There were several of us. It could have been three. It could have been five. Infantino brought out the Jack Kirby work that had been inked by Royer. And he said, have you ever seen anything like this? <laughs> and there was a double page spread. And I had never seen anything like that. <laughs> no. Can I tell you? Yeah. Again, this is how different it was. Yeah. May I emphasize this? Sure. Uh, what I'm t about to say is not a lie. It's something that I wrote down I hope I can remember the way I wrote it down because I wrote it down very delicately, gently, and specifically. But at the time, comics were a failing business. People were wondering when it was going to fail. People thought there might not be a DC or a Marvel very, very soon. Right. Comics cost 12 cents. You can't make much of a profit on 12 cents. They, they weren't being allowed into the stores anymore. Right. And what was this failure caused by? Was this just people not really being into comics anymore? Well, part of it was, well, I think there were many blows. I, I actually get into it in Tower of the Comic Book You do, book you do. You talk about, uh, you talk about Wortham, too, well, a little bit. With with the Wortham thing mm -hmm. and the Senate inquiry, uh, the whole MacGuffin of the story is the Senate inquiry. Right. We, we have, uh, the bad guy is uh, an artist who was really, really big during the pre-code years, right. but spoke against the publishers during the Senate inquiry in the mid-1950s, and they would no longer hire him. Right. That's the MacGuffin of the story. Yeah. Uh, and he's become um, a cranky old coot, mm -hmm. but uh, a brilliant cranky old coot. Once the greatest comic artist and a second greatest artist. I, I continually emphasize Kirby was the greatest. greatest. Kirby was the greatest. Yeah. The fellow in my book was the second greatest yeah. and everyone knew it. Yeah. But a brilliant man. So what happened was in the mid 50s, the American Senate, Estes Kvavar, Frederick Wortham, uh, managed to convince mummies and daddies that comics were really bad for their kids. And there was a, enough truth in it for people to adopt that view wholesale. About the same time television came in, and I think it was really television that did the, that did the comics in. Yeah. People didn't want to look at the comics. They wanted to watch The Idiot Box. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, I mean, I would have been born around that time. I, would, I grew up with the television, but we went to the television. We didn't go to the funny pages. Right. The reading of comics diminished. Meanwhile, they were only 12 cents each. So the profit that a store would get on a 12 cent item was minimal. Yeah. And if they could put a magazine there that would give them, say, a 10 cent profit, they didn't want the comics. Mm -hmm. So what was happening was it was changing from a dying industry into an art form about 1970. Okay. The number of people who were into it as an art form were perhaps 500, 1,000 at the most. It was a small cadre of teenage boys. Most of which were rather geeky. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if there's if it's still perceived that way. I go to a convention now. It's about half girls, half boys. Back then, it was about zero girls, all yeah. boys. Yeah.
And the perception was, it, you go into it in Tower of the Comic Book Freaks, like, that you couldn't get laid if you were into comics, and girls... Uh, None of us. You weren't uh, socially uh, skilled enough to, to try and land a, a, a girl. None of us were sexually active. Mm-hmm. The, the whole... The whole I, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> For, 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 to someone, for, for someone to say, I'm going to go to this convention. I'm out of town. There's a hotel room. Maybe there'll be a girl there who likes me. Right. No one would say that. Yeah. There wouldn't be a girl at first. There were almost no girls there. The only girls that were there were dealers' wives. Mm-hmm. And girls didn't like us for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how many girls are going to like guys that, spent a, that would f- drive 500 miles to commune with other people who read something that most people stopped reading when they were 11 years old. Right. We were just freaks. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's called comic book freaks because we were strange. But it was, it was the hippie era. It was the time of the freaks. Yeah. But no, we weren't sexually active. We were just strange, strange little kids. And the, the mummies and daddies were scared about, scared uh, for us. They didn't know where we were going. And uh, a lot of us were fairly bright or talented individuals uh, who did well with whatever we were endowed with. But I don't think it's a stretch to say at that point, we, most of us were in our awkward years. They, it was tough. Right. It was tough. For you personally, uh, is there any aspect of your main character uh, that is you in terms of, I, I think you, you emphasize that he had a little bit of athletic ability. He was like, I had better? a lot of athletic ability. Okay. Yeah. I, I became a gym teacher later right. on. Yeah. I did a 350 pound bench press. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I and actually, that was rare for somebody who was into comics. At the nobody time. in comics cared about athletics at all. Yeah. No, we were all pudgy little guys. In fact, at that time when I was... I was 17 years old in 1971, and I played on several of the school teams, but I wasn't on the starting lineup. Uh, I was a reasonably good athlete, but I didn't start growing till later. Uh, I I was a school teacher. I'm not anymore. I'm a retired school teacher. Mm -hmm. So one woman on our staff came in fourth in the Women's Ontario Contest. Uh, okay. For bodybuilding. Okay. She looked great. She just looked completely, she looked completely ripped. Her husband looked great. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I never competed and I didn't look anywhere near as good as you or your husband, but I look pretty good. And I've got a photo at home of that and I'm going to send it to you. Okay. So I couldn't find it and I sent it to her. She must've thought I was lying. And I did send it to her a couple of years later. One of my friends at the school looked at it and he said, you were halfway to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe more than half. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, actually, Schwarzenegger was very big. He was 235 pounds. Uh, I couldn't get over 168. But when you see me just by myself, if I do say so myself, yeah, I was pretty big, pretty ripped, very strong, and quite athletic. So that's sort of a contradiction in terms of a guy who's in a comics, but also very ripped and, yeah, and athletic. Later. And yeah. I posed for comic books. Right. Some artists work from photos. They work. Some work from photos of me. I don't. I don't know if you can see it in me now. Probably not. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. I think so. Like, I'm 60. I see the arms. I see the broad. You're, okay. you're a little broader than. Um, a little yeah. broader than most. Yeah. I still have a six pack. Awesome. Yeah, at 63. That's yeah. awesome, man. So I, I, my actually my my elder brother was we my elder brother and I shared a hotel room, and he said. How come your chest looks like that? And I said, I was born to have a chest that looked like that. Uh, some people are, they're ectomorphs, endomorphs, mesomorphs. And at a certain part of my life, 
I went, I just turned into a mesomorph. Right. Uh, I did other things to compound that. I did weights. I ran. I, I was involved in, in I, uh, I was a swimming instructor. Mm. I played hockey all the time. Mm. Um, I was a half-decent wrestler. But mostly, it, I just ended up that way. So there is that parallel between me and that fellow. I, I remember my friend Marshall Estrin. He was a comics fan, too. And he looked at me and he said, The body of Conan the Barbarian the face of Howdy Doody. Wow. <laughs> Howdy Doody was a children's puppet in yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. People say, was that you? And I say, well, there were certain differences. First, he looks he looks like Justin Trudeau. The lead character looks like Justin yeah, Trudeau. Yeah, he's got the hair. Yeah, yeah. he's got the same hair. I, I yeah. gave him the Jewish nose. I wanted him to have the, yeah. the hallmark of Judaism, if yeah. you will. And yeah. I gave him a bit of a nose. And Trudeau's got the same nose yeah. that, that I do and that my character does. Mm-hmm. I said, he looks like Justin Trudeau. I look like Howdy Doody. Right. Uh, he's got two girls uh, coming on to him in a four-day weekend. Right. Girls didn't even know my name. I was just that strange kid in the corner of the classroom. It's not that they didn't want to talk to me. They didn't even know I was alive to talk to me. <laughs> right. I was just the weird kid in the corner. That's yeah. all I was. Yeah, yeah. So if anything, it's a wish fulfillment. But it sure wasn't me. I wish it was. You're sort of a lesson that the the body can't get you all the way. You need you need other things as well. Well, um, <laughs> I. I uh, it's a lawyer joke, actually. One of my friends is a lawyer, and he said, what do lawyers use for contraceptive? Answer, their personalities. <laughs> now, uh, that joke applied to me perfectly well. Right, and that's and in here. I have my lead character. I think it's on page 13, mm-hmm. saying I used... I used my personality as a contraceptive. Yeah. And um, I certainly did, too. I used my personality as a contraceptive. And though I was muscular and well-proportioned, I've never had a handsome face. Right. And uh, I I always said that my my acne cleared up three months before I started going bald. (laughs) That's the way it goes. Wow. Can't have everything. (laughs) So so you're, you're going to these conventions. How often would you get to go? To Detroit or New York? Or... Oh, the New York convention was once a year. Okay. Uh, they would also you go had... the t- every time? Oh, no. See, I would have summer jobs and it would be difficult. Right. But what ended up happening a few years later? Well, again, um, I guess it's a little more complicated. There are conventions now called the creation conventions. Okay. These were started, I believe, in 1972. Uh, there were two guys, either in their teens or very early 20s, who looked at what Suling was doing and said, you know, we could actually make money off of this. Mm-hmm. So they had a, a convention, which, if you will, was tighter run, and it seemed to be run for a profit and became a series of conventions which were done at a profit. Because conventions started as like fan conventions, like fan Yes, run they did, fan and- run. And not really for profit, just for like the love of the hobby? Uh, Though I'm not the accountant of the two fellows who ran the creation conventions, it seemed to me that they were being done for profit by fans. Okay. And they, uh, again, it was about 1972, and they were starting to realize that you could make money, and there was nothing wrong with making money. Right. They took risks, and it seemed that they made money. What I remember was Neil Adams uh, came to the door of their convention, and they said... You know, I'm very sorry, Mr. Mr. Adams, but you're going to have to pay for your admission just like everyone else. And Adams got very irate 
and you know, do you know who I am? Rightly, yeah. Uh, I'll make sure that no one connected with professional comics comes to your convention. I can't swear that those were his words. What I can swear is that he was quite irate. And it took the fellows 10 seconds to turn around and say, we're very sorry, Mr. Adams, please come to our convention. <laughs> yeah. uh, they realized how foolish they were. But that action said to me, well, these guys are here to make money. Right. It's OK. People want to make money. Right. Exactly. What was distinctive about these creation conventions? I don't know if there was anything. Just just like a regular convention that just got started. So there was a yeah, lot. Yeah, they were all started. There was a lot of them. So, But what about in Toronto? There was definitely not a lot of them. There were very, very few of them. Okay. I used to hitchhike to the one in Detroit. Okay. You could do that. You know, you could stick out your thumb on the highway, get picked up, and uh, have a friendly conversation with whoever was driving you for a few hours. I, I would generally get let out at the, I guess it's the Rainbow Bridge there, the, the Detroit Bridge. Yeah. And I'd go to the McDonald's that was right at the end of the bridge. And then I'd walk over and I'd walk into the downtown area huh. and uh, I'd go to the convention. You, you could do the whole thing for just a few dollars. That's awesome. Yeah. What kind of books did you pick up when you were there? Like, what was your strategy for getting, well, getting things? I was also fairly broke. Um and I wasn't a collector so much as an, an accumulator. I don't really remember the books that I bought, <clears throat> but I remember one that got away. I remember there was a Journey into Mystery 83 there, the first Thor. It, it cost $3.50. And I had to buy supper. Supper was going to cost me about 85, 85 cents. I was going to get chicken and french fries because there was a place downstairs that sold that. Mm. And I thought, well, you know, I could probably afford three fifty. But another 85 cents on top of that, I don't know. So I let it go. And I suppose what I did was I ran around buying superhero comics like the Fantastic Four and the Avengers when they cost a nickel or a dime. That's probably what I would have done, but I don't recall. Oh, okay. Cool. So what about what about Toronto? Were there conventions in Toronto? There was a convention in Toronto. I'm proud to say I was one of the founders of it. Okay. If I had to say who the founder was, it was a fellow named Ken Ketter. And by the way, this convention is well remembered and it was written up on the Toronto Star website in January of last year. Oh. So it, it was in the news as recently as a year ago. Wow. And I think the point of it was stressing the differences between it and the Comic Expo. Yeah, saying how well, much better and smaller it was. Well, it, I don't know if it was better, but it was friendlier mm -hmm. and much smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, it cost, I think it was $3.50 to get in. We handed out a lot of free tickets to children's groups. I remember that. What was it, it was, called? It was, called it was initially called Cosmic Con. Okay, so you were talking about that earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And cause, Jim Steranko, I don't think we paid him. Uh, I wasn't involved in the communication. Steranko was to be our guest. And uh, I don't know if he said he would do the poster or if we asked him to do the poster. I just don't recall. But he composed an absolutely beautiful poster for us. Oh. And he, he changed Cosmic Con to Cosmic Con, which is a far better word. Right. The poster was put up all over the university, and it was taken down all over the university because people took them and put them in dorm rooms. It was this a beautiful Steranko drawing. This was at York. York. So then we put up a second wave of them, uh, tearing each poster so that they wouldn't be taken down. Right. So Ken Ketter, I ran into him. I remember he was coming off an elevator, and one of our numbers said, that's my friend Ken. Can he share a room with us? And the room was already pretty cramped, so he didn't share the room. 
but he, he was a distinctive looking individual. Most of us were. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting around York University doing nothing. And he walked by. He, he, he had a very distinctive look. He was a big guy with a lot of curly hair. I couldn't forget that. And I ran up to him and I said, excuse me, could we have possibly met at the New York Comic Convention? And by coincidence, he was proposing to get money from the college council uh, sometime in the next couple of days. And he said, could you come to this meeting? It, it might, I don't think it was that night. That would be too pat a story anyway. But I'm pretty sure it was that week. And I went to the meeting and then me and Ken were putting on the convention. And then other people came in and were involved in putting on the convention. And the convention was set for early March, very early March. It was freezing cold. And our guests were to be Jim Steranko from the world of comics, Alan Renee from the world of film. And I assume that his name would not be known to most of the people listening to this. But he made a film called Last Year in Marion Band and another film called Hiroshima Mon Amour. Okay. I hope I've got that right. Uh, he was a famous alternative filmmaker in France, and I hope I have that right too. But he came, he came from France wow. to our convention. And the number three one, we, were, we cheated a bit there. It was Gray Morrow. Gray Morrow was a comic artist, but he might have been better known as a science fiction illustrator. Yeah. So he was our science fiction guest. But here's what happened. Okay. At the time, comics were largely an American endeavor, but stuff was coming in from Spain and from France. People like Philip Droulet, people like Mobius were becoming well known, at least among the American comic book artists. Uh, Warren was printing some of their work and we had some of the, um, well, some of the books, BDs coming into Canada and the United States. Right. And they thought Canada, well, they speak French up there, don't they? Yeah. You know, we'll go up to Canada and we'll get some of their comics. You know, little did they know that in Ontario, not too many, in Toronto, not too many people spoke no, French. No. And we had no more knowledge of people like Philip Droulet than they did. But it brought them, it brought them up. Once they got here, they found the first comic convention uh, that took place at a university. And they were being treated like demigods by guys like me. Yeah. You know, Mr. Wrights and Mr. Kaluta, I just love your work. Yeah. And the girls at the convention who were helping to put it on or just students at the college thought, these guys must be important. They're treating them like they're rock stars or famous actors. Maybe they are important. And uh, a lot of the artists there, I mean, again, I didn't have a camera, but it was easy to see that they were getting along romantically with the female students right. at the college. right. Then what seemed to have happened was they went back and told their friends. <laughs> and the next year we were flooded with, with comic artists and comic writers. By the third year, I'll tell you who was there. Stanley again. Wow. James Warren of Warren Publishing. That's amazing. Carmen Infantino, who was still the president of DC. Right. And this is after you went to his office? And yes, this was years around. later. Okay. This was two years, two years later. Okay. <laughs> um, P.J. O'Rourke, who was the editor-in-chief of the National Lampoon, right. was there. Michelle Urey, who was the cartoon editor at Playboy, was there. And everybody else was there, too. Right. You know, that that was the top of the, the big pyramid. The rest of the pyramid was there, too. Yeah. <laughs> everybody was there. It was the place to be. We were the headline 
I don't remember if it was Friday night or Saturday night, but we were the headline of the Toronto Star. And I don't remember the headline, but comic freaks converge on York University. Something like that. It's like a movie poster. Yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, the most popular um, radio announcers in Toronto were Pete Griffin and Geets Romo. So they did a show from Cosmic Con. Wow. So why did you start Cosmic Con? Why of, did we start it? Yeah, just because there was no... Because Ken Ketter, Ken Ketter was the most adventurous guy I've ever met. Ken, I mean, anybody else would have said, a comic convention, you know how hard that must be to do? You know what we could end up, how badly we could end up messing up? And Ketter didn't say that. Ketter said, we could put on something that's real, real neat. Or I could put on something that's real neat. I mean, Ken was the only one there at the time doing it. Right. So he got 600 bucks uh, from the convention. And he thought, 600 bucks, the plane ticket's 200. We'll get these guys up for 200 each. We'll get three of them. We'll put them up in the dormitory. Well, they can pay for their own food. Mm. What's there to worry about? To Ken, it seemed as simple as that. And then as things went on, we found out, found both that there were lots of other things to worry about. But on the other hand, there were lots of other benefits. As time went on... The convention got so huge that it was taken over by the student council of Winters College and, I believe, of York University. Uh, I believe it went from a $600 budget in the first year to a $24,000 budget. And keep in mind, comics were 20 cents. An ice cream cone was a dime. Wow. $24,000 was a lot. It was also a political mess because um, I, I would say Canada at the time and especially at a left-wing place like York University, had a lot of anti-American sentiments. Uh, the main issue seemed to be America owned a lot of Canadian industry. And Pierre Trudeau said, uh, present pain for future gain, we're going to buy our industries back. And there was pain. So with this, they said, why are we putting down $24,000 to bring American professionals and American dealers and Americans yeah. up to York University. Mm -hmm. There was that political pressure. And there was also the fact that most of us were graduating at that point. And it was just a hobby to us. It wasn't like those two young fellows who were putting on the creation conventions to make money. Right. It was a hobby. We were willing to lose $24,000 of the university's money mm -hmm. on that last Cosmicon. So we did it for four years. And then I remember a fellow named Marty Herzog he essentially snatched the name and he did something called Cosmic Can Con, okay. which was at York University, which was confusing enough. Uh, I think it was a one day show. I remember John Byrne and Terry Austin were there, but I don't remember much else about it. Mm -hmm. And then there was another convention put on with a similar name. And people of my generation, we remember it fondly, but it, oh, it was a long time ago. I mean, it was 1972, March. So 45 years ago. 1972 was the last one? No, the first one. The first one. first one was 45 years ago. Okay. And uh, to my knowledge, it was the first convention in Canada, the first thing that could truly be called a convention. Wow. Uh, advertised in the, the journals of the time, a guest list, a uh, committee running it. I think it was the first one. And there were so few at the time. Oh, and I'll tell you something else about it. Okay. 
Okay, I don't know how old I am sometime, and I don't know how young other people are, but does the name Ted Nugent mean anything yes, to you? Yes, Ted Nugent still means something. He's a little crazy these days. That's right. He supports Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he's the crazy man. Yeah. And before that, he was the, the bow rock. hunter. People yeah, knew yeah. him as the bow hunter. Right, right. And before that, he had an album that everyone had called Cat Scratch Fever. Which I've listened to. Okay. Yeah. Before Cat Scratch Fever... He was Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes, and he had a he was a one hit wonder with a song called "Journey to the Center of Your Mind." <laughs> come along if you care, bah, 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 bah. Come along if you dare, bah, 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 bah. Take a ride to the land inside of your dreams. It was a huge hit. It was yeah. a wonderful song. Yeah. So Ketter, like, just imagine the the. The, the chutzpah, the moxie, the gall of this guy. He doesn't phone up Ted Nugent. He phones up Alice Cooper. And he says, we're having a fantasy convention. We want you to play at it. And I don't know what he offered Alice Cooper, but he didn't offer him standard rate. That's for sure. He might have not offered him anything. And he got turned down by Alice Cooper. And then Ken, and I, Ken could be listening to this. And I, Ken, if I'm changing your words at all, I hope I'm not changing your intention. This is how I remember it. And I'm trying to paint you as what you were, which is a visionary and a hero. But here's what Ken did. He called up whoever managed Ted Nugent and the Amboy Dukes and said, you guys are just in Detroit. He should come over to Toronto, four-hour drive, play York University. We can't pay him much, but we can pay him and his band and I'm sure I've got this right, $1,100. And it'll be the entranceway to the Canadian University circuit. So we had this huge rock star who was between hit song and hit album playing at Cosmicon. Wow. No other convention. The first one. The first one. Wow. No convention before or since can claim anything like that at all. <laughs> That's and crazy. And Ken, Ken did it. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So... Oh, and it was free with admission. That, it was free. That's that's amazing. <laughs> so it's it's like it's like TCAF is now where it's it's free. You just have to buy your books from from dealers and that sort of thing. But like the people that were there, I mean that that's like a that's like Fan Expo caliber caliber guests. If I'm relating it, to we were way better than Fan Expo. Times. We yeah. were much better than Fan yeah. Expo. There was no comparison right, right. for comic guests between us and Fan Expo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I I will not. It, Fan Expo couldn't touch us, and all our guests paid their own way up. That's crazy. Yeah, they 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 were they came on their nickel. They heard it's, it was the place. It's to amazing. Be. It's amazing what you can get away with when when things are sort of small and yeah. not really mainstream, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, back. The, I mean, it. You know, it. It's funny. Um, there was one room in the entire world, and the room would only be open three or four weekends a year where these guys were stars mostly somebody like bernie wrightson or mike kaluta or jeff jones these were the the hottest artists of the day jim stranko al williamson they would be home drawing at a drawing board listening to the radio maybe the tv would be in the background their child it would be like everyone else's life they'd be at that drawing board Mm -hmm. and then for one weekend they could go to a comic convention where they would be rock stars famous actors they would they would be people who would 
Do you remember that scene in Wayne's World where they bow down to yeah, Alice Cooper? Yeah, we are yeah, not I worthy. Remember. We are not worthy. I remember. It was the same scene. Yeah. We are not worthy. That's not crazy. literally, of course, but that's how we acted. We are not worthy. And then they'd go back and they'd have to draw. So while you were there, you were sort of managing them or at least taking care of their needs, right? No, I wasn't. No? Uh, I was deeply involved in the organization of it. Okay. But when it actually came to taking care of their needs, uh, here's what I think. Someone would have been assigned to show them a room in the dormitory. Okay. Uh, most of the people who were going to the convention didn't sleep in a hotel room. My guess would be less than 10%, perhaps 1% mm-hmm. slept in hotel rooms. Uh, there were dormitories and common rooms. So they'd pull up into a corner of the common room and they'd sleep there for nothing. That's how it was done. The guests were given dormitory rooms because there were extra rooms. Right. For food, I really don't think they were given food budgets. They would just eat in the cafeteria or the the various places that were meant to feed students. I remember going to, oh, gee, I think it was the Vanier College Bar and sitting there with Steve Skates talking and he could drink beer. Wow. And uh, also, you know how Trudeau's about to change the drug laws? Yeah. They were changed 45 years ago by the York University staff. Um, your, the police were not, did not come into York University unless they were called. Right. I know that for a fact. So drug laws were broken at York University with impunity. Um, I, I would feel as though I would be transgressing to say this in a podcast. But, um, oh, actually, I can say part of it. Okay. Neil Adams took LSD for the first time with me sitting diagonally across from him at the first Cosmic Con. <laughs> really? The reason I can say this is he came out publicly on the internet saying, yeah, I was at a convention in Canada. <laughs> it was freezing cold. I took LSD. I'm glad I took it. I haven't taken it since. And it's not for everybody, but it was good for me the one time. I'm paraphrasing not very closely, but I'm I'm getting right. about what he said. If you if you look it up, if you if you search Neil Adams LSD, you'll eventually find it. That's awesome. But I would so, and you'll also find uh, on the comment section <laughs> me saying I was there with him. Right. I remember it. So I can tell you about Adams taking LSD because he's gone public. The rest of the people I can't and I won't tell you about. Okay. But uh, you could smoke dope openly at York. Nobody would say anything. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. they could. They so could. what was Neil Adams like on LSD? Do you do you remember what he, he was very quiet? <laughs> I can. I uh, I think I have to describe it. Yes. But he was leaning on. He was sitting on the floor, leaning against the wall, being very very quiet. Right. I was talking to Howard Chaikin, who was talking mostly to a girl named Gloria, and he had romantic designs on Gloria. Right. Gloria was lovely. Gloria Agnew. If you're out there, Gloria, I'm sure you're still lovely, and at that age, you were as beautiful as could be. And if you would have talked to me only for a minute, I would have felt as though uh, uh, a bolt had come down from heaven. <laughs> you were always very nice to me, but nothing beyond that. But Howard Chaikin was there. Glo- the Gloria, however, was, seemed extremely receptive to <laughs> Howard Chaikin's overtures. Right. I, I didn't have a camera. I don't know what happened between them. But she she seemed to enjoy Howard Chaikin's um, come on. Right. Yeah. So there was Chaikin, there was Gloria, and Adams was beside them on LSD, and he was sitting there quietly in a in a suit, in a business suit, I guess enjoying whatever feelings were coming over him. I've never used uh, LSD yeah. myself. Yeah. And I was talking to Chaikin a bit, and he probably thought I was just a pest. Right. I mean, I was. Did you pick up on what was happening to Adams? 
shaken told me. Oh. I wouldn't have figured it out okay. myself. Okay. No. And in <laughs> fact, my buddy, uh, he's still my buddy today, Ron Peterson. He took acid that weekend too. Right. And I was saying to him, what's it like? What's it like? Are you hallucinating? And Ron said, uh, well, I'm, I'm not really hallucinating, Ron, but if I wanted to turn you into Captain America right now, I could easily do it. <laughs> I mean, he could force a, a, an hallucination upon himself. Uh, cool. I assume that some of the people who are listening just know a lot more about what I'm talking about than I do. Right. But that's what he told me. Right. And I think I remember that very clearly. Cool. So you also, I, I did a little research on you and you, you also did some work for comics like i, I worked for I, dc I, I googled your name and there was a bu- there was a bunch of comics that came up so tell me a little bit about that and how you got involved in actually like okay. doing comics i i'm i'm looking at a closed copy of tower of the Com- oh i i've got to tell you something okay uh there's a name that hardly anybody here will know but the the few people that do know it will go oh my goodness gracious and their jaw will drop there's an artist named blair drawson Okay. Okay. Blair is one of the foremost illustrators in all of Canada. Okay. I think the foremost illustrator in Canada is probably a woman named Anita Kunz. And Blair is in a group of four or five, one rung below her. Okay. He's a brilliant man. The word genius might even apply to Blair. And I've got a buddy who knows Blair, and I, I know Blair a bit myself. And um, my buddy, uh, I gave him the book, and my buddy said... Can I buy two more of those? I enjoyed it. I want to give them away. And I said, well, I can't really sell it to my friends, but I will sell it to you at my cost. I don't want to lose money on three books. So right. I'll lose money on one, but not on three. Right. So he bought two more from me and he gave one to Blair. So I got home maybe a week and a half, two weeks later. And on my answering machine, Blair liked the art. Wow. And I was just shocked because uh, I don't think I have... Uh, an overstated view of my abilities as an artist. I can draw good enough, depending on what I'm drawing. Right. But ultimately, I can't draw that well. There are a lot of guys I know, they can draw better than me with their left hand. And they can draw better than me with a pen in their mouth. Some guys are pretty good. I'm nowhere near in that class. But as I drew it, I thought I can draw good enough. It's good enough. So Blair, I think, read it in that same headspace and thought... For what he's writing about, this drawing is pretty good. Right. But I I don't have the chops of uh, a full-blown Marvel artist who gets regular work and is on a regular book. Mm -hmm. I'm nowhere near that. I drew it good enough. What I can do better than good enough is letter. Okay. So when I was uh, a man of about, let's say, 25, um, I used to pose for Peter Sue's comic books. I started posing for Peter Sue's comics when I was about 21. And then, is that a publisher? Peter Sue used to do something called Quadrant, which was a soft core porn comic book. Okay. He used to draw for Warren Comics as well. He drew for, what was it called? Vortex. He usually drew things where a lot of skin was shown. Right. His, his usual method of operation was he'd go into a bar and flatter women He'd have his camera there. Cameras weren't as common back then. And he'd have cameras with with all kinds of different lenses. And you must pose for me. You must pose for me. And they'd eventually come over to his home and he'd illuminate them. And uh, he'd take shots. He would take shots of me as well. And sometimes he'd take shots of me with the women. So at one point he said to me, Ron, you letter very well. Would you letter some of my comics? So I lettered Peter's stuff and my lettering was quite bad. Yeah. But it would go to print 
and I would notice the mistakes in it. Right. So I would make the next one better. Mm-hmm. And the next one after that was better. And eventually my lettering got good enough so that I could letter for major companies. Cool. So I lettered for Eclipse image before everybody was working for image because people just bought an image sticker for their book yeah um i lettered for for dc nice and uh when i did tower of the comic book freaks i thought look at least i know how to letter this thing's going to have a good sense of graphic design a good sense of design and the cover you'll notice is a lettered cover yeah i talk about my art i mean i'm talking about it now there are at least a couple of good drawings in there and um the publisher said that other drawing, which you colored, that would probably make a better cover than than the one with the lettering. And uh, I said, well, you know, I'm willing to, to use that. And the publisher said, well, why don't you go with your own instincts? Because this thing is something you want to be as proud of as you can be. Right. You want to be able to show it to people in 10 years. Yeah, and you never know how well it's going to do. So you might as well do it the way you want to do it, right? Well, I think I, I think I did it right, both commercially and for design. Uh, a friend of mine saw it in a comic store, and he said, you know, I was going to buy it, but even if I wasn't going to buy it, it just jumped off the shelves at you because yeah. everybody's got the, a very different type of graphic design. And on the it. fact that it's called the Tower of the Comic Book Freaks is intriguing because mm-hmm. usually you talk about comic book geeks. Right. Yeah. And and you you say or you said earlier in this conversation why it's freaks, but but you know the fact that you changed it to freaks immediately I go freaks little what, different. What do you mean? You know what do you mean? Which makes you want to open open the book and yeah geek and look the words geek and nerd had been coined at the time but they weren't in common usage. Okay. The common usage for someone like me was a jerk. That guy's a jerk. He reads comics and. Uh, Someone who was a hippie was a freak. Okay. So um, I wanted to get the hippie ethos in. And that's why I've got... I, I'd like to think that's hippie lettering. The stars around there reflect hippie design. Well, very Peter, like Grateful Dead sort of... Uh, Peter Max. Poster. You know, those sort of concert post, uh, posters and those sorts of things. Uh, a lot of them were done by a fellow named Peter Max. He was the the big hippie artist. Mm-hmm. And that, that star motif was common in his work. That's why I've got stars there. Right, right. Uh, but I tried to make it look a bit like a hippie cover. And I colored it various ways. And I, I was using paisley design in it, uh, swirly design in it. And my friends were critiquing it. And uh, then I did this one. And they said, Ron, the others are just far too busy. Stick with the red, white, gray, and black one. Yeah, it looks really good. I'm, I'm, I mean, the only other like really well-lettered stuff that I've bought is the posters that are produced by Todd Klein on his. Oh, he's, yeah, he's good. He money, so... Yeah. One way I learned to letter was by reading his commentaries on how to letter. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to do it as well if not for Todd Klein. I'd like to think that I can do all the lettering styles Todd Klein can do. I'm a a knowledgeable letterer. Mm -hmm. But he did them day after day after day in many, many comic books. He knows exactly what he's doing. I was a school teacher who made a buck lettering. Like you, you could probably do it. Because now, like, lettering is done mostly digitally, right? Yeah, I've only done one story digitally, mm-hmm. and that was just to have done it. Okay. It's not easy for me. I'd have to get into the swing of it. Right. So, how does it how does it go down? Like, how did they used to used to do it? Or how did, you know, oh. what's the dying art of, of, of lettering? Okay. 
Uh, it's, it's quite simple, really. Okay. Uh, you take something called an Ames lettering guide, and you put it on a T-square, okay. and you run the lettering guide across the page over and over and over. You set it to 3.25 or 3.5, and then you have equally spaced lines. Then you take a B five and a half speedball pen, <laughs> you put ink in it, and you letter. Cool. And you try to do it the exact same way Artie Semek and Sam Rosen did it. Nice. There's a standard there's a standard style. There'll be a natural deviation within your style without you trying to, to have a deviation. You try to do it exactly the way those people do, and you'll end up with a deviation. I mean, at the very most basic level, that's all there is to it. You what, could work a lifetime just knowing that. That's crazy. What if you what if you want to do like onomatopoeia or like sound effects oh. or those? Sorts of okay, things? here's what you do. You have a light box, mm-hmm. and you you write with a marker on a piece of scrap paper, bang, and then you put the word bang on your light box. Mm-hmm. You put your your illustration paper over it, and then you trace bang. And then you might put a shadow on it. You might put an extra thick line on it. You might make it wavy. It's it's really not that hard to do. Wow. Uh, now, mind you, uh, I compare it to to pottery. That pottery is not that hard to do. But if you don't know how to do it, it doesn't matter if you're Michelangelo. Right. Michelangelo couldn't do a pot on a wheel unless someone showed him how. Yeah. With with hand lettering, it's not that hard. But you have to know how to do it. Right. Uh, when I got my job at DC. How old was I? I had a I had a child at the time. I was probably 34 and I was at the Chicago convention. There was a long long line of kids who wanted to be pencilers or inkers, I suppose. And um I stood at the other end of the line. I essentially jumped to the front of the line. And I said to the fellow's name was Dave Tangway and he had a title uh, assistant editor, associate editor. And I said to Dave in deference to my age and in deference to the job I'm trying to get, can I just hand you this? And I hadn't handed him the same type of sample page that Todd Klein um, has produced. Yeah. I just handed it to him and had my name and address on it. And he said, this is pretty good. Um, I'll talk to you later. So I don't remember what happened. He probably phoned me and I got work on the DC Funny Animal books. Cool. Yeah. Uh, that's that's how I did it with DC. Nice. And with Marvel, see, I had, I had a, I had a family. Right. I, there were two kids at home. I had a, a demanding job. It's not that easy to do this. Mm-hmm. So what happened with Marvel was, I sent a note to Mark Grunwald, who was the editor in chief at the time, with my lettering, and uh, Grunwald said, "Unfortunately, I don't." hire the letterers the editors do so i've passed your samples around to all the letterers if you don't hear from them within a month please phone me and he'll see to it that i get a job wow however that was probably in august and i was back at school in september and it was just crazy you don't want to get a bad rep i've never missed a deadline in my life and i sure didn't want to miss one with a big company like marvel right so uh to my regret i've never worked for marvel i wish i did so would you only letter during the summer okay what happened at the time was my wife had taken two she was a teacher as well she had taken off two years from work to take care of our youngest paul okay so he was about two years old at the time my wife could not extend her leave so i applied for a a paternal leave and got it so when paul would go to sleep in the afternoon i'd let her like crazy i'd let her on weekends if i got a job but what ended up was 
about the time co- computer lettering came in with a program called Whizbang. Right. Whizbang cost $25. My rates for lettering ranged from $10 to about $30 American. And a good professional rate was $23. So um, for one page of lettering, you could buy the Whizbang program and not need me. Right. So Whizbang came in. I went out. I went back to work. I'm stressing the big companies I worked for, but in all honesty, most of the companies I worked for were smaller ones. Right. Eclipse was pretty small. Eclipse was, I'd say, a medium-sized company. They were doing color stuff, but most of those companies would rather do. They called it doing it in-house. Right. They paid somebody, not too much, to use the computer in-house rather than hire me and have the FedEx truck truck come up. Right. It was fun while it lasted, but um, the smaller companies like Eclipse were going out of business. Mm -hmm. Whizbang came in. I went out. That was that. Yeah. And so it was only like a few years that you lettered or how how long? Oh, gee. Well, on and off, I've, I've lettered for various people and various companies for quite a while, like maybe 30 years. Wow. But it's become fewer and far farther between in recent years. Right, right. But there's some people that still want, I guess, the hand-lettered feel sometimes. Not many. I get it now and then. Uh, let me just think. Oh, the last time I hand-lettered by somebody wanted a hand-lettered feel, it was a Captain Canuck comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not by Richard Cumley, but by Mark Shaneblum and Sandy can't think of a second name out in PEI. And the last time I did lettering, somebody just needed a letterer and they couldn't get the one they wanted. Right. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. So Ron, I wanted to get your take on how... Tower of the Comic Book Freaks came to be. What was uh, the impetus for the idea, and uh, and how did it get published? Um, okay, I'm I'm not sure where to start. There, I had done some stories for a company in Georgia, and I did a 41 page story. Uh, it was called The Geek of the Gods. Okay, and I was very proud of it, and I made sure that they were going to publish it before I did it. It's two months. 41 pages for me is two months' work. So, um. I finished it. They proofread it. They made changes on it. It it was actually being advertised in the stores. It was being sold in England. Right. And then the company died. It was never shipped. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't happy about that. I thought it was my best story. I I, I was very proud of it. And I thought, I'm not going to draw another line until this thing gets published. Wow. But I wasn't able to find a publisher. So what happened? Like, how, how, how did it die? Did they just decide not to publish it? or um, Things were changing dramatically in the world of comics at the time. Okay. And I'd have trouble giving you a year. Okay. Uh, but let's say it was 10 years ago. Okay. Things were shifting from comic book to book. Okay. So they were publishing 64-page comic book anthologies. And they just, and the, the anthology, you may have heard of it. It had a long, long run called Negative Burn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was initially published by Caliber in Detroit. 
And then one of the editors moved to Georgia, and I don't know the arrangement, but he took the book with him, and he started publishing it as a Desperado publication. Okay. It was no longer a caliber publication. So it had gone on for years. It was, uh, it seemed to be a healthy publication. Right. A lot of good people worked for it. But then what happened was the comic was selling less and less each issue. Right. And the writing was on the wall. The future was in books. So he changed it from a 64-page comic to a 200-page book. Okay. And I was to have my 41-page story in there, plus something that he called a sketchbook. It was called a sketchbook, but what it was was the stories never add up to 200 pages. So you're at, you end up with six or eight extra pages at the, at the end. Right. And you got to shove something in there. So you take one of your artists, ask him what junk he's got lying around, and you publish single-page illustrations by him. Right. Called them a sketchbook. Right, right. So I was proud. I was going to have a sketchbook plus 41 pages. And then the thing died. The company died. It just ran out of steam, ran out of money. And uh, Joe Pruitt, who was an excellent person to work with, a talented man, he'd actually drawn, not drawn, he'd written an ex-comic. Smart guy, good editor. He warehoused his comics, sold some of them. And uh, my understanding is he uh, went to work in construction. Okay. He had a large family. Somebody's got to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what he did at the time. So Joe was was gone. I wasn't going to draw anymore without a publisher. Nobody would print that. So I started doing oil paintings. And I was actually making a bit of money doing oil paint. Uh, portraits. I was doing portraiture. Right. And uh, I'll just mention it here. We I've got a, a Tumblr site called ronkassman.tumblr.com. Okay. And you can see... Uh, some of my oil paintings there, some of my comics there. I was doing those. And I said, well, I've, I vowed not to draw another comic page, but I will write. Right. So I wrote five graphic novels. One was about uh, growing up Jewish in the north end of Toronto. Okay. And if there was a theme in that, the theme was that it was pretty much like growing up anywhere in any religion. But there were slight differences, and I accented the differences. Right. I wrote another about the local comic scene uh, when I was growing up, which would have zero sales potential. You know, the only people who would buy it would be the people who um, were part of that scene in Toronto. Almost nobody. Right. I wrote a third about a superhero in Northern Ontario. Okay. Uh, I wrote a fourth about internet dating. And I thought that had the greatest potential as a for sales yeah. as a graphic novel. It would be very, very easy to draw because a lot of people would just be, a lot of the drawings would just be people standing at the computer and people on dates. You could knock it off quite quickly. And if I ever decide to do another graphic novel, that'll probably be it. Okay. And then there was this one. So I said to myself at a certain point, which of these would combine sales potential with being enjoyable to, to write and draw, to, you know, to, to, to break down the writing of and to draw. So I started drawing this thing. Initially, I drew maybe 15 pages just to get a feel of the style. And then I got, I got it up to 50 pages. Then uh, the woman who became my wife uh, became pregnant with our child. And I was around her all the time and I had to do something. Right. So I took it up to 79 pages. And then I realized I'd spent a lot of time on this and it was time to find a publisher or just can the 79 pages that I didn't want to do 216 pages and then not find a publisher. Right, right. So it's a lot easier today to, to find a publisher than it used to be. You don't have to send out big packages through the mail. You just scan everything. Yeah. You, you can hit all the publishers at the same time. 
Right. So I found a list on the internet, started sending out, and most of the publishers simply did not respond. Uh, some of the publishers responded with, it's wonderful. We love it. I'll buy a copy myself, but I won't print it because we'll lose money. And it's very easy to write a note like that. And you, you'd have to be a horrible egomaniac to believe that every note that said that was actually true. But I also got a couple that said that sort of thing, but not in a couple lines. A couple people wrote a page or more to me saying, this is really a good story, plus a story that should be told, because no one really knows. The history of fandom in that period is not widely known. No, that's why we don't, you're here. We don't know how we got here. Uh, it tells us how we got here. Plus, it's a great read. And I actually think it is a good read. I, I think it's not just aimed at the comic fan. It's aimed at just about anybody. Right. It's a romance story. I meant it that way to make it more accessible. And at uh, Amazon, it's listed as an historical romance. Uh, when I tried to promote it, I said, Aaron, have you seen the movie Taxi Driver or maybe Midnight Cowboy? I have seen Taxi Driver, yeah. Okay. Both those movies are set in New York when New York was like Sodom and Gomorrah. Right. It's like 70s, dirty, Horrible. skeezy New York. Oh, people thought it could never be cleaned up. And Rudy Giuliani cleaned it up. And he tried to become president based on what he did in New York. Right. I'll do the same thing to the rest of the United States. I'll clean it up. <laughs> and people thought, well, you did a good job in New York, but we'd rather have someone else. Go away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's never been a nostalgic story written about New York when it was Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm -hmm. So the contrast is five guys, just guys like you and me, but 45 years ago from Toronto, Toronto used to be called, believe it or not, Toronto, the good, right? You've heard that. You know what? I'm doing a story right now in Toronto comics anthology, uh, about a murder in the 1930s. It's a gang, a gangster gets killed on like Jarvis and Dundas. It's based on a book and it talks about how, Toronto back then was known as Tor Toronto the Good, and this murder was what exposed sort of the underground gambling, bootlegging, and stuff that was happening okay. uh, right under people's nose. So in the 70s, if it was, if it was still called Toronto the Good, I don't think uh, they got the message early, earlier in, in Toronto's history, I guess. Toronto had no identity. Right. What we were was a city in 1971. We were a city of two million. Mm -hmm. I remember Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song. It's got the line... Um, the skyline of Toronto is something to look onto, but tomorrow night I'll be Alberta bound. Right. Yeah, we had a nice skyline compared to Halifax, not compared to Chicago, not to compared to New York or Boston. Um, wasn't that great a skyline? And uh, this is about five naive guys from Toronto driving down to Sodom and Gomorrah in New York City. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and I mean, at the time, wasn't Toronto more prudish? Like the liquor laws... Like, things were closed okay. on Sundays, like those sorts of things. Like Toronto was closed on Sundays until very recently. Okay. Um, I actually, if, if being dry, I live in the beaches, and I moved to the beaches, I have to think for a moment, but about 38 years ago, the beaches, if you go there today, bars, restaurants, all over, mm -hmm. it was a dry community 38 years ago. You couldn't buy a beer in the beaches 38 years ago. Each community had the choice. As for Sunday shopping, the only places you could shop on Sunday, and I'm not sure when the laws changed, but I think it was only about 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. There were tourist neighborhoods like Chinatown where you could shop on Sunday. 
And there was a fellow named Paul Magder who owned a furrier just outside of Chinatown. And there was another furrier about five doors over who was in Chinatown. He got to stay open Sunday. Paul Magder had to close on Sunday. (laughs) So he went against the law and that's what changed it in Toronto. So these guys go down to New York. Right. The junction was dry too until like 2001. Is that so? Officially, yeah. Like it was, it was like a dry neighborhood apparently. Well, Toronto was a very quiet community and still, this is something that I, I mean, I researched this, I checked it. Uh, There are more murders in the state of Louisiana each year than there are in the entire country of Canada. Wow, yeah. There are almost as many murders in the city of Baltimore each year as there are in the entire country of Canada. Right. We're just a peaceful place. Yeah, yeah. And what we've become is the most multicultural city in the world. We sure do it well. It's nice and peaceful here. Mm -hmm. And we're a city of neighborhoods. Yeah. Where, I don't know if I overstate it, I don't think I'm overstating it, but I can walk through any neighborhood in Toronto and not think twice. Uh, In New York, at high noon in the center of the city you were terrified yeah that's what taxi driver and midnight cowboy are all about right right so i'm taking a nostalgic look at that in another media (laughs) with the counterpoint being five guys from toronto right so i thought the story was worthwhile people who didn't want to publish it thought the story was worthwhile and then i i contacted gary reed who i had worked for as a letterer a penciler and an inker for years before and said uh well gary what do you think and he sent back a note the same day saying we'll publish it i got a contract from gary i was not happy with at all and a friend of mine said oh you got the image contract and I think Image was the first company to, to make this. The problem with the contract is uh, rights on residual, not, I don't know if it's called residual, on related media. Oh, so if, if your book gets optioned into a movie or yeah. merchandise or those sorts of things. Okay, you sort of take it for granted. The comic book's not going to sell much. And if, right. if you do make a few bucks on it, great. Right. I'll make a few bucks on it. But buy a few bucks... I don't think it'll come to 50 cents an hour. I dream of 50 cents an hour for the work I've done on that. Right, right, right. And everybody who does this sort of thing understands that. Unless you're working on, you know, if if you're working on something like Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, Iron Man, Captain America, Superman, you'll make some money. Right. If you work on a story that you wrote because you like writing stories and and drew because you like drawing, you're just not going to make much. Right. Not going to amount to a hill of beans. So I know that. But it's like a little bit like buying a lottery ticket. Okay, I know I'm throwing away my money, but there is that one chance in a million that I'll be that lucky guy. Right. And I mean, this is a romantic story, right? So it, it could be like a Chasing Amy or, a, you know, one of those sorts of... Uh, have you seen that one? Like yes, Kevin, I Kevin have. Smith? Of course I've seen yeah, it. Yeah, so, so that's sort of what it reminded me of. So it could, it could be a movie. Well, what I'm holding there figuratively is a lottery ticket to to big money you know here it comes yeah i'll never have to work again um that's that's all i'm holding a lottery ticket and i know my chances on that are the same as the chances buying a lottery ticket but what would happen if when you bought that lottery ticket the the person who owned the corner store said you know if you win i get half the money right what do you mean you get half the money? I'm the guy that did it. Well, that's the contract. I get half the money. And that was Gary Reed's contract. So I was extremely resistant to signing it. Mm-hmm. And then two of my friends, one a lawyer who likes comics, the other uh, a widely published comic artist who's done 
several books for DC said, Ron, you just got rejected by, I don't remember if it was 16 or 17. I can't remember if I got rejected by 17 or if Gary was number 17. (laughs) But you just got rejected by 17 companies, Ron. You've been offered a contract. Take the contract. And though the two fellows don't know one another, they use virtually the same words. Right. You know, you've just been rejected by 17 companies. Sign the contract. Mm -hmm. So I signed it. I'm glad I did. Good. The chance of that big money rolling in are slim, but I'd rather had to have, as they say, half of something than all of nothing. And I could have spent years trying to sell that thing, as I did with that story I mentioned, Captain Bill. Um, may have never sold to anyone else. Right. Gary saw a little bit of, he saw a chance. He saw a lottery ticket in it himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um uh, and but, they'd been successful before in optioning their properties, hadn't they? Like They've had... I, I wish I had the number at, at, at arm's length. Uh, their their big hit was The Crow. Oh. They owned The Crow before it became a major motion picture with Brandon Lee. Wow. And was the number 10 movie of the year 2000, the number 10 grossing movie of the year 2000. Well, yeah. So that was their big one. But my understanding, and I don't, I hope I'm not diminishing the number. They've had about 40 options over the years. Right. But the Brandon Lee movie, I think, came out like 93 or something. I believe it was the year 2000. Uh, I could be wrong. No, I I think it was early 90s when he he passed away. The one where he he dies, right? Yeah, he died in in the movie. In the movie, yeah, yeah. That was that was early nineties. Okay, probably on the box I have it says it was. They probably reissued it. Probably reissued in the year two thousand. Probably, yeah. Okay, learn something. Yeah, interesting. (laughs) So that's cool because The Crow is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's definitely a movie that you should check out. That's cool. Wouldn't exist if not for Caliber. No, awesome. Yeah. So they've. uh, I I think they've published over a thousand comic books, and they've gotten one movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So again, I'm. I, I know it's a lottery ticket. I'm not foolish. I, I'm. I'm not. I'm not telling you that this is going to be the next. You know what is so good about sliced bread? Anyway, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Right. Uh, I don't know what's so good about sliced bread, but I don't believe my book is the best thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. I believe that when you have a story in this form, people are more inclined to look at it than look at a, a movie script. Right. As for movie scripts, there are five people just on my block. My block has nine. The highest number on my block, Luti, is 99 Luti. Mm-hmm. And I know five people on my block, if I include myself with this, who are writing movie scripts. Wow. If I extrapolate that to all of Toronto, think of the number of movie scripts. Yeah. All of Canada, all of North America. Every jerk I know is writing a movie yeah. script. They're sitting in bars talking about them, trying to talk about how to take over Hollywood with their dumb idea. Right, right. And with some people, I meet them, and for 20 years they've been saying, yeah, we're this close. Um, They're not this close. It's (laughs) My understanding is about 250 Hollywood films are made per year. Right. 90% of them are written by people who've written them before. Yeah. So there's an opening for about 25 people to sell these things with all the people who are writing. Those 25 people are generally journalists, uh, novelists, people who already know how to write professionally. Right. I don't even fall into that group of 25. That's crazy. I'm a school teacher who's written a story. Yeah. I'm not going to be one of these guys who walks around saying, yeah, 
we're this close. Yeah. Mel Gibson's people have read it and they love it. I'm expecting the contract next week. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be like that. Yeah. But uh, I will say I bought my lottery ticket. That's awesome. And at least it is a bit of a time capsule. Like there's not just, you know, what it was like to go to a convention in the seventies, but you have, you have like the first cosplayer in, in there. And I, I've got an echo of what early cosplay was like. Yeah. So can you go into that a little bit? Like what yeah, little... was early cosplay like? Okay. I, I never, I have never done it. Okay. Uh, what I know is that there's a, a photo still remaining, either from the early 60s or late 50s, of a husband and wife where the wife is dressed as Mary Marvel and the husband is dressed as some superhero. I think it was Green Arrow. Okay. And there was not a convention. Conventions didn't start till 64, but they went to a, a house party. Uh, there weren't many comic fans. E even when I was a kid, we would meet in London, Ontario at somebody's house. People from Detroit, people from Toronto, people from London, Ontario right. would meet at someone's house and have a, you couldn't even call it, it would it would be a house party yeah, of comic you could, you fans. Could, you could fit them all in a living room in yeah, a kitchen. you could. <laughs> Guy had a big house. Right, but, right. So we met at his house. Exactly. So people in the Midwest met at someone's house and some of the people actually wore costumes. So it does go back that far. In the very early 1970s, a comic convention would have a costume parade where people would dress up usually in homemade and simple costumes. Pardon me. And they would stand on a on a stage and there would be a small audience and people would applaud. And they'd right, like a masquerade. Stage. What a masquerade is. It would is be a now. masquerade. And yeah. there might be 30 or 40 people attending the convention who would do this. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my friends was named, I haven't talked to him in 20 years, Really nice fellow named Mark Bilgery. Okay. And Mark was a little younger than me. So if I was 17, he might have been 15. Mark was friendly with a guy named Larry Ivy. Larry Ivy was one of the first people that fit this description. He was part fan, part pro, part publisher. Okay. And he had a newsstand magazine called Monsters and Heroes. Hmm. There was a comic in there called Ultron Boy. Uh, my friend Mark was a good-looking young fellow. So one way or another, Larry Ivy got him an Ultron Boy suit. And Mark would pose for the cover paintings of Ultron Boy and also pose for the drawings that Larry did in his comic strip, Ultron Boy, inside the magazine. Right. So Mark, he'd kill two birds with one stone and he'd attend the conventions as Ultron Boy. Right. And stand on the stage in the poses that he took on the magazine covers, which we were all familiar with. Would he, would he be able to get an autograph from that? Like, if somebody came up to him, would they recognize him from the cover as, like, the, the Ultron Boy? I think he would be recognizable as Ultron Boy. Yeah. It was such a small community. I would think that almost everybody there knew that this was the guy who posed as Ultron yeah, Boy. Yeah, so that's awesome. So, early cosplay was like the models for some of the covers who, for the artists who did like photo well, sometimes, the, sometimes the the best ones or the better ones right. were there was a woman who was uh physically beautiful she was beautiful and also if, if you'll allow me she had a strong sexual presence okay uh she was about 23 years old i was you know 17 18 so she was way older than me mm -hmm. and she, her name her stage name was destiny and she called herself angelique Trouvere. Now, there's a chance that that was her name, but it sounds like a fake name to me. So right. I think she had the fake name and the more fake name, Destiny. So Angelique Trouvere would dress up as Vampirilla. And uh, there were almost no women going to these things. And then we go to the convention and there'd be a woman dressed up in the Vampirilla clothing. And she, she had very large breasts and flowing hips and long black hair. You know, I mean, she was both highly sexualized 
and physically beautiful. Um, Yeah. She'd go on stage and she'd pose as Vampirilla. And photos were taken of her, which were used as reference for some of the Vampirilla covers. Ah, So so her image was... Basically on the cover. Some of the covers. Okay. Some of the covers. But I also have to say that when they painted her, they would make the breasts fuller and the hips more flowing. Right, and right. Her face even so more beautiful. you wouldn't beautiful. be able to recognize her necessarily. Uh, only if you knew the photos and if you knew her. Yeah. You'd say, that's destiny. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And she would go to the science fiction conventions and do the same thing. And I've communicated with her a bit on this, uh, emails. And she said that she she really loved doing it. She loved the attention she was given at these conventions. Mm-hmm. And there'd be other guys who would dress up as Captain America and so forth. And some of them looked the part. And some of them just did not look the part at all. But it was a small, clubby group. I mean, if you, if you read my story and if you believe my story, okay, bluntly, the first time I walked into that dealer's room, I said, my God, these must be the 500 ugliest people in New York City. <laughs> That's how we looked. Wow. Uh, I, and they are my brothers. I, yeah, I, yeah. I simply put myself in that group. Yeah. We were pimply. We were short. We were fat. We were unkempt. We dressed like slobs. Yeah. Um, each and every one of us. Right. There were no exceptions to that. Right. We were the 500 ugliest people. <laughs> maybe not just in New York. Maybe in all of New York State. Maybe in the whole country. <laughs> Boy, wow. it, we were like a Rodney Dangerfield joke. How ugly were they? Oh, you know, I went down to the bait store. <laughs> I, I, went, I went to the bait store with one of them. They thanked me for bringing them back. Uh, I mean, we were an ugly group of people. Yeah. So if some guy got up on stage... And he was a big, fat slob dressed as Captain America. Well, he was your brother. Right. You, you, didn't, you didn't get into it. You didn't minimize him. Right. You hoped he understood what he looked like. Yeah. You, you hoped he was self-aware. And it's about the expression of the fandom, right? At it the was. end of the day. It was. And to, to, to be otherwise would almost to be, self, be self-hating. Because mm-hmm. if these guys are like here, are here doing something that most people gave up doing when they were 11 years old. Mm-hmm. What am I doing here? Am I any different from these people? I was no different. Wow. Um, we were, we were uh, in a subculture, a fringe group. Today, it's different. Today, there are more people walking along Danforth Avenue with Captain America t-shirts mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Fantastic Four shirts and, uh, Superman shirts and Batman symbols on them than there were at a convention back in 1971. Right. Uh, today, we have won. Fans have taken over. We won. We took over the world. How do you feel about that? I think I was at the apex of it. I think I was uh, part of a small group, only about 500 to 1,000 of geeky teenage boys who were there turning a business which was failing into an extremely successful art form. Actually, um, Bill Shelley, he wrote a book on the the people who started fandom. And there are less than 100 people mentioned in the book, even if there were 200 mentioned in the book even if there were five if there were 500 people mentioned in the book i might have gotten mentioned in the book right but i i was far from being a key one right uh the the key ones in uh, among dealers phil suling howard rogowski uh, among convention organizers phil suling again bob rosh in detroit there were fan artists there was a guy there was a guy john g fantuccio and he was a 45 year old commercial artist 
he drew a few comic strips and they weren't very good. But on a single image, he was virtually as good as, you know, the Wrightsons, the Kalutas, the Joneses. Oh, wow. He had a style all his own. He was doing these things for fanzines and he wasn't charging. He just liked to draw pictures of Captain America. He drew them just, oh, and when I, when I did a convention myself, one of my jobs was I was supposed to communicate with all these people and, um, get images from them. Right. So I wrote a note to John G. Fantuccio saying, could you do a drawing for the program book? So he sent back an image, uh, probably about three feet by two feet. Just this beautiful image because he had fun doing it. We didn't charge one another. Wow. There was another guy named Jay. T.C.G. Cornell. You know, please, Mr. Cornell, would you do a drawing for our, our convention book? And there were so few, it was a bit of an honor. What I didn't know at the time was, the guy was a university professor, okay? And uh, he did this drawing for me of um, two people on a leaf, as though the leaf, the giant leaf, was a rowboat. Right. And they're standing on the leaf, rowing through a swamp. Yeah. It, it, was, it was something. Right. Years later, as a high school art teacher, I used his textbook. <laughs> he wrote a textbook. Wow. And what made it a unique textbook was, uh, kids in high school, it, it's hard to get them to relate to the history of art. So if you want to teach them Michelangelo, a way to teach them Michelangelo is say, well, Bern Hogarth drew in all the muscles when he was drawing Tarzan. And you put a Michelangelo sculpture beside a picture of Tarzan. And that's what John Cornell did. J.T.C.G. Cornell, he yeah. was calling himself back then. John Cornell. That's what he did. And his textbook sold again all over North America. Kids in every high school were using it. It was a great textbook. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So so what happened to all the comics that you collected back then? Like, there weren't any bags and boards or anything no. back then, were there? No. I, I used to store my comics in the basement, literally on splintering orange crates. And what was good about that was I had access to them. If I wanted to go grab an Avengers comic, I knew where the Avengers stack was. I didn't have to worry about taking it out of a, a package. Right. Uh, worry about the tape. I just took it and read it. Right. But they didn't stay in good condition. It's amazing that so many did stay in good condition. I eventually sold my comics for fair market value of the day. What was that? So, well, I had an Amazing Fantasy 15. Now, I bought the Amazing Fantasy 15 for $3.50. Okay. I bought the Spider-Man one for a dollar. I think I bought it for a dollar. And there were two Amazing Spider-Man ones there. One had a little corner off. I bought the one with the corner off for a buck. And my friend Irv Wise bought the one that had no corner off for a buck and a half. So I sold the Amazing Fantasy 15 for about $20. Wow. I don't remember what I sold the Spider-Man one for, probably, you know, $10, whatever fair market value was. Wow. So from my view, I mean, when I try to look at it in the nicest way, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. That was the only way you could get it at the time. By If you wanted to read it, you had to own it. Yeah. They weren't reprinting them en masse. So I was able to read it. I was able to enjoy having it as a physical object. I made a profit selling it. If I still had it today, I'd have the equivalent value of a car. <laughs> exactly. And I don't. But it was nice to own it. And you can bet that the person I sold it to for $20 sold it to someone else for 30 or 40 or 50 yeah. And it went up step by step. And it moved around each time. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how many people have owned it over the years. I have no way of knowing, of course. I would love to know that. That would be an interesting fact. Uh, that could be like the 
comic book version of Ancestry.com instead of families you track uh, merchandise. Okay, if I ever have another two years to spare, I would tell the story of an amazing Fantasy 15 bought off the stands by a fellow named Danny Adler okay. and that he sold it to me for three fifty, and I sold it. I, it wouldn't be me. It would be some interesting Fictional version of me. Yeah. He sold it for three fifty and thought, well, gee, you know, I made thirty five times the amount. And then I sold it for seven times the amount in New York. Then whoever got in New York sold it again. And it would show the difference in what comic fandom was each step of the way as the Amazing Fantasy fifteen went up in value. That's amazing. And it would show huge jumps in value when things happened like uh, eBay. With eBay, everybody could become a dealer. Right. At one time, if you bought a comic, the only thing you could really do with it was sell it back to the store for much less later on. Right. So with eBay, we were all dealers. We could buy those comics and be assured that we could resell them. Mm -hmm. Then CGC yeah. came along, shot up in value again. Then some basketball player paid a million dollars for a copy of Action One, and the whole market followed well, him. Well, Nicolas Cage had Action One. and The whole market fo followed. Yeah. And uh, with each step, things change. Comic stores came about. Right. So instead of having to wait for that one comic to come in to your city at a one-day convention, there was a comic store that just might have it. Right. Price goes up. So it would follow all those steps mm -hmm. in the emergence of fandom and the price of comics going up while following that amazing Fantasy 15 around North America. Right. And then, and then in the 90s, there was sort of the crash, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> But of course, Amazing Fantasy is never gonna never gonna really crash. But, uh, yeah. It's it's hard unless the whole market shifts the other way. Yeah, and coins and stamps shifted the other way. Mm -hmm. So the market could, but it's kind of nice. I mean, I my my I have a collection today. It's not worth much. But if my whole collection, if the whole market shifted down, and the cost of the value of my collection was cut in half. Wouldn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not half of a whole lot of money. Totally. So, like, if you're going to be a fan of comics, what's your advice? I mean, it sounds like you have to be passionate and you have to not worry about the value and how much it's going to how much it's going to be. I can't answer that well, but I can tell you a, an opposing point of view. OK. OK. I have my artwork up at the Humber School of Comedy. Um, I, another interest of mine is is comedy. I'm not a comedian myself, but the whole, but the whole history of it I, I find fascinating. Right. So they put up my portraits, and I used to get invited to all their activities. The last time I was invited to one of their activities, I think, was October or November. They still know who I am. Right. So there was a a comedian. He was in Kids in the Hall, and he was also on Saturday Night Live. He was on both. Okay. And he was talking to the graduating class at a banquet. And there were t 10 tables, and each table had about 10 people at it. And he said, there are 10 tables here now. 10 years from now, the number of you who are still in comedy will be only one table. <laughs> and he said, the living will envy the dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think in comics, there's a bit of that now. Right. Like, I look back at the people in 1970, they're still my buddies, but some stayed with it, some didn't. Yeah. And some of the living, people like me, look back at the people who left 
and say, why didn't I do that? Like, I didn't have to dedicate my life to this. So why did I, why did I dedicate my life to this? So maybe we should conclude by saying, why did you stick with it? Why are you still in it? Oh, I don't know. For me, it's been a very, very good thing. Well, okay. I, I mean, it's, it's hard to give an honest answer, but I'm going to try. Okay. I thought I was going to have a life in the sciences. I went into science right. university and it didn't work. It doesn't always work out. So I went into fine arts and then I became a teacher. In fine arts, I was able to play around with working with the, with human bodies and, and designing a picture. Mm-hmm. And then when I became a teacher, art, I was primarily an art teacher. I did phys ed too, but I was primarily, an, I taught theater arts too, storytelling. Wow. But the whole comic book thing was always there with me. And it gave me reason or perhaps an excuse to look at it. When I became a, when I started looking to become a teacher, I thought I would never get a job. So I, I drew a history comic book. And we're not here to talk about that. But the history comic book got into an art gallery. Right. It got reviewed by the Toronto Star. Wow. Eventually, James K. Bartleman, the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, of Ontario, distributed at least 10,000 of these things, maybe tens of thousands of these things, in what he called the Crusade for Literacy. So I had my picture in the newspaper with James K. Bartleman shaking hands. Um, this is all of something I did at 23. It's the, the comic, is it got published. Yeah. It's quite terrible. Like, if you looked at it, there's nothing good about it. Yeah. Nothing. There's nothing good about it. But from doing that, I... I you know, it boosted my ego a little bit. I felt a little bit better about myself. I thought I was doing something worthwhile. And I strived to improve my skills. And I never got as far as the people that um, meant so much to me. The, the the great artists like like Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Bernie Wrightson and Jeff Jones. I never got near what they could do. But I got better. And sometimes just getting better is enough to keep you doing something. Right. So it, it gave me legitimacy as a teacher. And uh, I even got a tiny little bit known outside of that. Nice. I'd, I'd get into the conventions for free. <laughs> That's um, always the goal. I'd, yeah. You know, I, I'd get published here or there. I'd be exhibited here and there. And it just made the whole thing worthwhile. Wow. I think that would... Oh, and also, if I had to make a living off of this, I don't think it could have happened. I would have probably ended up being a paste-up artist... That that for a long before the computer, that was the bread and butter right. of of the world of art. I might have been, I might have made signs in in lettering, maybe display signs. Maybe I've I've designed a lot of logos. Maybe I would have been a logo designer, but it would have been a difficult way for me to make a living as a teacher. I could do my day job, which involved art, and then in the evenings, you know, Christmas break, summer break, weekends, I could do the stuff that I loved so much. Uh, I could do comics. Right. So maybe that's why it worked out for me. I wouldn't suggest it for everyone, but it worked for me. And was it easier to relate to the kids that way because you were into comics? I can tell you how it's changed. I used to sit in class and I would do a caricature of a student or I'd do a drawing of the Incredible Hulk. And they'd go, that's really nice. Can I have it? And I'd, I'd give it away. That was the whole point. When comics grew as a media that... Well, I, I, it's not comics that grew. It's what was developed in comics that grew. The, the characters like the Avengers, the X-Men. Right. Uh, when that grew and people started accessing it through video games and apparel and uh, movies, 
I would do the drawings and the kids would go cool, 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 like a flock of birds, cool. And then they would say, what are you going to do with that? Are you coming back tomorrow to do another one? So uh, strangely, um, later in my career, and when I substitute taught, uh, the kids appreciated the drawings much, much more wow. than early in my career. That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. I mean, it's it's still amazing. Like you, you have skills and you have knowledge and you have history that uh, not many people can access anymore. And I'm certainly one of those people. Like everything that you're telling me is sort of before my time, but it's a time that as a comic fan now, you know, I, I, I wish I was a part of. So it's been great having you in here to okay. give some insight into what you know Toronto fandom was, New York fandom, Detroit fandom was, what conventions were like back in the 70s. So uh, thank you so much, Ron. This has been amazing. You're very kind. And uh, it's been a joy. Thanks. Awesome. And we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.